We're in a series called Overcoming Fear, Choosing Courage in the Age of Anxiety. We hope that this series helps us all move, move beyond the fears that we carry collectively or individually that are keeping us from following God in faith. Now, what I hope to show you from this, now, it's really interesting whenever you read an Old Testament um, story like this, we're not trying to lay our circumstance too one for one over this. It's not true. We're not, you know, the people of God in Israel who were chosen. And we, we, we read this as a lesson that we learn back and we learn from. And I'll show you where we get that in a second. But what I hope to teach today from this text are some lessons regarding the fears that meet a community when they look into their future. Whenever a group of people look into their future, there are always fears that, that, that get resurfaced. What lessons can we learn? So look at Numbers 13. I'm going to read verses 1 through 3, then skip to verse 17, and then read through verse 4, chapter 14. Okay. And then I'll just pause real quick and do a short prayer. Verse 1, the Lord said to Moses... Send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I'm giving to the, to, uh, to the Israelites. From each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. So the Lord's command, Moses, uh, so, so at the Lord's command, Moses sent, out, sent them out from the desert of Paran. All of them were leaders of the Israelites. Skip to verse 17. When Moses sent them to explore Canaan, he said, go up through Negev and into the hill country. See what the land is like and whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they walled, unwalled, or fortified? How's the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are the trees in it or not? Do you do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land? It was a season for the first ripe grapes. So they went up and explored the land from the desert of Zin as far as uh, Rehob uh, towards Lebo Hamath. They went up through Negev and came to Hebron where Iman, all these names are bad, Keep, uh, skip that, verse 23. And they reached the valley of Eshekel, there it is again. They, they cut off a branch bearing a single cluster of grapes. Two of them carried uh, it on a pole between them, along with some pomegranates and figs. And the place uh, was called the Valley of Eshkol because of the cluster of grapes the Israelites cut off there. And at the end of 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. And they came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went to the land which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey, and here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live there in Negev, and the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live near the sea along the Jordan. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with them said, we can't attack these people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread, they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We even saw the Nephilim there, the sense of Anak, Anak came, uh, that came from the Nephilim. We seem like grasshoppers in our eyes, um, in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. That night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, if only we had died in Egypt or in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land only to let us fall by the sword? 
Our wives and our children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. This is um, God's word, and this is our our text this morning. Lord, um, teach us. Show us. Uh, May we learn from this passage, this very important lesson uh, from from, from, from the Torah. In Jesus' name, amen. Today's text is the archetypal story in the Torah of fear versus faith. The contrast between faith of Caleb and Joshua and the contagious fear of a community. And it's a very tragic story. This is a very tragic story. Because of this story, the children of Israel are left in the desert for another 38 years, wandering around until the generation of those who didn't believe all died off. So in a way, the whole book of Numbers didn't have to be written and probably wouldn't have been written if not for this story. The consequence of fear and unbelief are as tragic and real then than they are in our lives today. So much of what God has for us, both individually and a community, can too often uh, be left on the other side of the Jordan River because of our fears and our lack of faith in God. This is a timely story. I think this is a very timely story for our community. The Apostle Paul when he recalls this exact story in 1 Corinthians 10, he says this. Now, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. So when we're supposed to, Christians, as we read back this Old Testament story, and Paul literally quotes this story, he says, these things occurred as examples so that we can learn from them. So what exactly happened in this story, and what can we learn from it? Especially given our current moment as a church. The first thing we learn is this. The story starts with a context of a complaining community. A complaining community. In chapter 11, Israel is complaining about the way God is miraculously providing for them by feeding them manna from heaven. They're sick of the manna. We want something other than manna. When we were slaves, we ate different kinds of food. And now we're here, and now all we eat is manna. And they were complaining. And so God, if you remember the story, sent them quail. In chapter 12, they're, co- they're complaining about Moses, their leader, and his leadership, and some of the decisions that he's making. And the point is this. When any of us, individually, as a community, as a family, or as a church, begin to complain about God's provision, his gifts, or what he has given you, it's the beginning of disaster. The children of Israel had a long history of grumbling and complaining. The word for grumble and complain makes, means um, a low-grade murmur of negativity. Basically, it's cynicism. That feeling you get when you don't trust anyone anymore. When you don't trust your friends, when you don't trust your community, when you don't trust your church, when you don't trust your leadership, or you don't trust God. But here's the thing. When you zoom out from this story, we can all see how deeply blessed and cared for the children of Israel were by God. We zoom out and like, oh my gosh, God delivered you from slavery and led you by force through the parted Red Sea. He destroyed Egypt. They experienced the manifest presence of God among them, caring for them by uh, water from a rock, manna from heaven, uh, leading them by a cloud by day. So a cloud by day means they were, they was like fog, like we would have fog. Now, we all complain about fog, but if you live in the desert and it's 150 outside and then fog rolled in, you're like, oh, thank you, God. Like yesterday, it was a little hot, really hot, 84, 80, maybe 80, which is like 110 for us. And then fog rolled in, you're like, oh, thank you, God. 
Just I want the air conditioning. It's like that. They're lit by cool cloud by day, okay? Now, anyone can see it, but they became deeply dissatisfied by God and what God had given them. And what this means is this. The real background to chapter 13 wasn't the fear they had of the people who lived in Canaan. It was actually a critical spirit. That's the real background. A critical spirit will drain you of your faith. A critical spirit will sap you of your passion to follow God. It will remove your trust. So if you, if you cultivate a critical spirit, when God comes to you with a new task or the next step of your journey or the next step of your faith, you won't be able to rise to the challenge and you will blame other people for it. Now, I confess to you, I know all this because my default mode as a fallen human, redeemed, but still live in the flesh sometimes, my default mode tends to be seeing the world with a critical spirit. That's my default mode. I'm not proud of it. I have to fight it all the time. A critical spirit has harmed my marriage more than once. A critical spirit has done damage in my relationships. A critical spirit could have harmed this deal with this new building had it not been for the wonderful team uh, a discernment team that was around me as well. That's me. Let me ask about you for a second. Is there any way that a critical spirit or complaining about God's provision in your life might be affecting your family or your community or this church in any way? I'll tell you, the only real way to resist a critical spirit is with gratitude. Thanking God. I have to wake up early almost every single morning and stoke gratitude in my own heart so that my cynicism doesn't rule my life. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 comes to mind, be thankful in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you who belong to Christ Jesus. This is God's will for you. God's will. It's right there. It's actually, what is God's will? It starts with gratitude, so you should start there. So that was the first thing that we can learn from this story. Beware of complaining in a critical spirit because it can set up a community for disaster. What a, what a crucial warning as we step into our future. Not that we can't have honest questions and concerns, but we must watch out that we aren't cloaking our complaints and our bitterness with, I have a concern about fill in the blank. We just have to watch that. We have a lot of honest and really good concerns, and we sat with all of them, but we have to be aware of that. The second thing we learn from this story is about fear itself. In the story, Moses sends out 12 spies. One leader from each tribe. They are leaders. The people that go are leaders. They're just not random people. They're leaders. He sends them out to gather information about the promised land to help them better so, so Moses can better lead the people into what God has for them. Moses wants to lead people in God's will. So he's like, gather all the information that you have. This is where God is sending us. Ten of the 12 spies come back and say that the will of God for their community is not doable. We can't do the will of God. It's impossible here. Now, the land is good. Actually, the land is very good. It flows with milk and honey. The grapes are giant. Here's some grapes. The soil is rich. The rivers are crystal clear. The land is wonderful, but it's impossible to go because the land is occupied by very powerful forces. What we learn about fear from this story is that fear will have us focusing on the wrong thing. Fears always have us focusing on the wrong thing. The 10 spies really only focus on one thing, and it's the wrong thing. They focus on the physical size of the people in the land, something that Moses never asked for. He only asked, are they strong or weak? He didn't say, what, how big are they? How big are you compared to them? They, he never asked that. 
They said they're giant and that we're like grasshoppers. And we were like grass, we were like little jumpy grasshoppers. And they were just huge. They were like 10X our size. They were huge. They even said that they saw Nephilim in the land, which according to the story world of Torah would mean that these demon giants that we met in Genesis 6 would somehow have lived through the flood of Noah when the, world, when the known world was wiped out. It somehow was like, you know how there was that flood? No, it didn't affect these people. They're still there. They're in the land. The Nephilim is, are there. They said that the land will devour them, which is funny because they just said the land was good. The land is good, but it's going to devour us. The land is actually not good. It's horrible. So they change what they said. See, this is what fear does. Fear will have us focusing on one thing, maybe a point of a possible failure or the point of our inadequacy to keep us from seeing the bigger picture. What's interesting is that the 10 spies make no reference to God whatsoever in their reports. God is not in their future. You can't do it. It's impossible. It's not doable. This is not doable. They don't mention God at all. The 10 spies never stop to ask the question, what does God want us to do? They never say, yeah, um, so, you know, uh, there are people in the land and they're pretty scary and they're a lot bigger than us and their cities are pretty fortified. But we, I think we have to sit, as leaders, we have to sit with the question, what does God want from us? They don't do that. They lose sight of the central question, and the only thing they focus on is what is doable, what is practical, what is practical, what can be managed, and the promised land is not doable. But we have to stop and ask ourselves a question, and it's this, what's really going on? Is it really about the giants in the land? Is it really about the fortified cities? Rabbi Jonathan Sachs points out that you actually have to step back and ask yourself obvious questions about this straightforward passage of Scripture. We, all, we actually have to step back and go, what's really going on? Now, here's what's really going on. Here's some, here's some really big background context. They had seen, the Israelites have seen with their own eyes how God has sent a series of plagues that brought Egypt, the strongest and longest lived of all empires in the ancient world, to their knees. They saw that. The Egyptians had cutting-edge military tech, but it was no match for God. Egypt was far stronger than all of the Canaanites combined and anyone else who lived in the land. And it wasn't like this happened like four generations ago. It just happened like more than a year ago. So they all had it fresh in their memory. See, not only will fear have you focusing on the wrong things, but most of the time, the thing we fear isn't really about the thing we fear. It's about something else. Most of the time, the thing that we say we fear isn't really our fear, it's something else. Meaning, sometimes we have to reread the fear that we ask, or reread the fear that we're feeling and ask ourselves the question, what is it really saying? Now, here's what I want you to think about. Think about this. Imagine if you were the children of Israel in the desert. You have just been so cared for and you've been so provided for by God. They had regular worship services. They had a cloud of shade in the desert. They not only had manna from heaven, but now they had quail, which is a huge upgrade. They had God's manifest presence among them. And God is coming to this community and saying this, I am calling you to do something that will be very costly for you. I want you to take ground in a place that has been a stronghold. You're going to have to leave this place of shade and comfort and go settle in the land, and it will entail a lot of sacrifice on your behalf. 
Now, think about this. How would you honestly answer this question? Think about it. Honestly, if you were in, in the desert and you were being so cared for and so miraculously provided for every single day, what would you say? Wouldn't you say, why can't we just stay in the desert? Why can't we just stay in the desert? Why can't we just keep our glorious worship services here? Why can't we just keep getting our food from heaven, sitting under this cloud, shading us from the harsh sun? It's not that bad. Why can't we just stay here and raise our kids in peace and just enjoy the Shekinah of God, the glory of God? Just like shows up in the tent when he wants to talk to us. This is pretty amazing. I think we can all understand this. The question is this, this is what Rabbi Sachs says, what if they weren't afraid of failure but they were actually afraid of success? And the feedback of the, the discernment team sat with, there was a lot of concern and it was really good and mature concern. And we had a lot of questions and concern about parking. <laughs> like a lot of that. And so if that was you who said that, you were one of a lot of people who brought up parking. We had a lot of feedback about safety. And several people asking about the question, are we really ready for our church to be in the mission district? Now, I honestly didn't understand this at first. I was like so baffled. I was really, really baffled. I'm like, we started in the Castro. We did, praise God, yes. We didn't have parking for like the first three years. Everyone who's here this morning, you had to find parking or something, or walk here or something, or public transportation, whatever. And then on our final discernment night, we're bringing, what we were trying to do is we're praying and then bringing up all the concerns that were sticking to our ribs. And someone, someone from the team stood up in this wise, maybe even prophetic moment said this. They said, we have to reread the parking concerns. What are they saying? We have to reread the concerns about being in the mission district. What is it saying? And they said this. Before now, we met in a kind of no man's land between two districts that had parking in the back where you just drove your car into the back of the church, walked in, the outside never saw in, and you never saw out. According to this person, our church was a very suburban church in a very urban area, era during the Everett years. And that felt really good. Oh, I love this church. Why? Because it feels like a suburban church in an urban area. See, what the parking concerns are, are really saying is that I don't, I don't want to engage with a dirty city. I don't want to find parking and then step around homeless folks who hang out on the steps of the building. What, the, that, what this information might really be saying is, why can't we just stay where we are? in a huge, cheap building that has tons of parking and space where we don't have to engage with the city if we don't really want to. Maybe you won't admit that you feel this way, but I'll admit it for you. I have felt this way. I have felt this and I couldn't even put my finger on it until that night. So when I read Numbers 13, I put myself in their shoes or in their sandals or whatever, I get it. I 100% get their concern. Why can't we just, if I was one of the people there and, the, and 10 of them came back and said, hey, they're crazy in that land. We're going to be devoured. We were like grasshopper. I'm like, no, time out. I, we have it really good here. Shade, manna. Now we have quail. We just added quail to the menu. I'm not leaving. There's no way I'm leaving this. 
What about my kids? What about my, my family? Like, we've made it. We, this is a really good gig that we have here. Why are we moving into this? See, hope and fear have a strong relationship. The hope for what can come in the future can easily be replaced by the fear of what will no longer be. And the, tempta- the temptation will be to retain what is old rather than attain what is new. When change happens, we're like, I don't want to, I, I, I have hope for the future, but I don't know if I can, I, can, I, I can lose what we have. You can call this maintaining status quo. You can call it playing it safe. You can call it giving into your fears or unbelief. Whatever you call it, it happens when the personal cost to obedience to God is too high for us. Now, what were the consequences? What were the consequences of saying, no, we don't want to go. We're going we, to stay here. We're going to all stay here. What were the consequences? Did Israel lose their salvation? Did fire come from the sky and devour all those who didn't believe? No, not at all. You know what happened? God gave them exactly what they wanted. They were able to play it safe in the desert for another 38 years. God fed them every single day. God fed them every single day. God provided shade for them every single day. They had worship services and sacrifices. God was faithful to them for 38 years. He remained faithful. He didn't leave them. He stayed with them for 38 years. Then what the heck? Why don't we just do that? Well, the point is, God was faithful to them, but this generation never got to contribute to the purposes of God, ever. They were still the people of God, but they did nothing to advance the very reason why God had called them out of slavery. They got stuck, and they did nothing to contribute to what God was trying to do through this people group. Church, I want want you to hear this from me. This discernment process has brought up a lot in our church and in our leadership. Much concern and a lot of anxiety has been brought to the surface in my own heart, in every single staff, leader, and every level, all the way into the congregation, all of us. At first, the idea of a building was just straight up fun and exciting for me. I love, I love to dream. I love to dream. But we do carry a lot of fear, which is normal. But if we don't zoom out to get the bigger picture of what God has done and what God is calling our church into would be a glorious act of unfaithfulness, would actually be unfaithlessness. And we're saying yes to this building, honestly, out of sheer obedience to God. Honest to God, we're saying yes out of sheer obedience. And I want you to know that. Not just me, our team. This This is where God is leading us into. God is calling us into this place for our maturation, for us, our maturing. God is calling us into this building into deeper mission in our church and as a church, and I believe that. Not only will we all have to sacrifice to get into this building, every single one of us will have to sacrifice something. Not only will it require our time and our energy and our money, but we'll step into a different level of spiritual warfare. It just will, it will be the truth. that We will all do that. It'll, we will feel it like we haven't felt it before. We will be called, in, in, we'll be called deeper into God's mission for this city. You know, church, I didn't move to San Francisco to start a successful church or to build a comfortable life. That's not why I moved here. I honestly moved here out of sheer obedience to God. Our church doesn't exist to be successful. It exists to be obedience to Jesus and the call and the mission of Christ. 
and he's our chief shepherd. Jesus is our chief shepherd, and the best our leadership can discern, this is where our shepherd is leading us, and we can't be afraid. When I honestly sit with the thought of this building, when the sobriety, Kevin said this, there was a sober moment when we said yes as a discernment team to this. It wasn't like, we're saying yes. It was like, whoa, we're saying yes. We're saying yes to everything that this building means, the things that we as a church carry in the life of this city, the mission that will, will, will call us all upward into the city. And there will be some people who opt out, who go, you know, I, I, I can't do this. It's just, it's a lot of work for my family. It's a lot of sacrifice and I can't do it. And we, we, we understand, I, I understand that. But I believe that this is, this is where God is calling us. And not so that we can be a church that says they has a building or a church that it's honestly for the mission of Christ. This is why we're moving into this building. And, and we could stay where we're at, we could. Um, I mean, we, not technically, but eventually we could. We don't have a place, but we eventually could go back. But I honestly feel like what it would do to our church would, would God would still love us. We'd still probably throw some really great worship gatherings, but we would not advance in why God has called our church into existence and our generation in the city. And so we are saying yes to this building for that reason, and this will take a lot of faith. This will take a lot of people that says, let's not be afraid, let's do this. Let's all, let's all do this together. And so we're asking not only for your prayers, but for your faith. We need our church to be carried in faith in what, what this is. This is a, a missional move, and we hope that we do change that, that corner of San Francisco. We hope that that fills our impact. That's our prayer, that's our hope. We want it to feel like there are, are people who are on mission for Jesus that really have given their lives for the sake of Christ that are gathering to worship and calling people to do the same on that corner. Let's pray. God, I pray as a, as a church we would learn these lessons that Paul says are for our good, that we don't set our hearts on what is evil. And so would you, would you hear our fears? Would you hear the things that, um, that we all collectively fear? And I pray that for some, it's really hard, and I understand this, it's really hard to trust leadership right now. It's hard to trust leadership with the pandemic that we all went through. It's hard to trust um, uh, people who, who make decisions for more people, and that decision costs them something. And this is hard, this is not an easy thing. Following church leadership is not easy. And so I pray that you would you would first give us a lot of grace, your grace and your presence, and I pray that we would all carry a sense of your mission in our bones, that you would get us excited about carrying the, the insurpassable glory of God in jars of clay as we park three blocks from the building and walk into it. as people see a bunch of people descending on this corner and leaving from this corner and the people that we will pass, the ways that we will pray, the inconvenience that we'll be brought into. There's all kinds of good that will come in this building, but Lord, it will cost us something. And I pray, and I, I believe it's our turn. I believe it's our turn to step into this sacrifice, this call, and to carry, maybe just for our generation. We pray for more, but maybe just our generation to carry on uh, the mission that you've given us. So may you fill us with faith and courage 
and a lot of boldness. In Jesus' name, amen.